as a sign of my life at the moment, by the way, that my admittedly quite short notes are written on squared paper because I've been doing homeschooling with my uh, seven, my eight-year-old grandson who's looking after it with us now. There's a thing about obtuse angles on the back. I'd forgotten how tedious year three maths was. <laughs> Apparently they don't do complex numbers in year three. Um, although, whichever teacher gets him next term, they can have real trouble, I'll tell you. So, <laughs> uh, so can we just pray first? Is that okay? Father, just thank you so much. Uh, for our family here, the family, Lord God, that is uh, our church. Thank you, Father, for the gift of your spirit, first on that Pentecost day, but now our birthright, the thing that binds us together. And Father, thank you that you've given us your word, your written word. Father, pray that your Holy Spirit would take your written word and make it live, become Rima word, living word for us this morning. And Lord, you challenge us, encourage us, but you speak to us as your people this morning. And the people said, Amen. I just want to run through very briefly first the actual like event of Pentecost. Uh, so it's important we know what happened. And I'm going to read scripture and just make a few comments. But actually, the, bo the bulk of what I want to say isn't really about Holy Spirit. It's about the disciples, the apostles, the people involved in the story. But let's just look at the text first. You have a Bible. I'm going to use, obviously, Acts 1 and 2. And let me just read the, uh, the bit from Acts 2 first, uh, just so we've been clear about that. Luke writes, Acts 2, 1. When the day of Pentecost came, and as Laurie says, Pentecost is 50 days after uh, Easter. It always used to worry me really badly when I was a kid, because I, I, I was good with numbers. I couldn't spell or write or do things, but I, could, I was good with numbers. 50 days from Easter Sunday is tomorrow. And it used to really, really worry me. I thought, surely the whole church has got, not got it wrong. Surely you can't have gone for 2,000 years and no one's added up to 50 properly. And I never dared ask anybody until I worked out the 50 days is from the Sabbath of Passover. Saturday, get it? Because it's a Jewish thing. Pentecost, 50 days after the uh, uh, Passover Sabbath. So in the Jewish calendar, it would be the first day of the week. For us, it's Sunday. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together. And by the way, Jesus, how long was Jesus after his resurrection? How long was he appearing to the disciples? Yeah, 40 days, that's right, yeah. So it's 10 days after the ascension. You've got Easter, 40 days, the ascension on that Thursday. And then we get this. They were all together. All together, I think here, is the hundred odd believers. In this building, there's sort of probably a bit more than that. Ruth, how many are there? Okay, probably about this many. There's, there's apostles, the, the 11 apostles. But it tells us Luke chap in chapter 1 of Acts, there's about 120 altogether. Uh, my gut feeling is they were probably somewhere in the temple, in a public place. Because that's a big room for 100 people. It's not absolutely clear the all here means that. It could just mean the, the, the apostles. But, but that's what Luke's talked about in chapter 1. And my view is it was all of them. Because the Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Say it after me. The Holy Spirit is given to all believers. Not just special people. 
Not just people who've got these things on, or people who blow shofars or whatever, but everybody. Everyone who's a Christian. That is our birthright. When you accept Jesus, Holy Spirit comes to live with you. Now, there may be times when you sort of don't quite know what's going on and maybe get a new experience, but it's not something that is like happens to special people at special times. It is the general, because Peter says it later on when he's preaching to the crowd that gathers. So get me the story, Chris, don't get carried away. In one place, suddenly a sound like the blowing of a wind and was filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Wind is always, Jesus used it himself as a picture of Holy Spirit. Because wind talks about, you know, you can see the effects of it, but you can't see the wind itself. And Jesus used that picture of, of Holy Spirit. John 3, 8, I think. Look it up if you want to. And fire is about God's presence. Wind is power. Fire is also power. But fire represents refining. The fact that the Holy Spirit comes to refine, to make us pure, to make us sanctified. Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us power. My, my, my little grandson, who's the one in Sheffield, uh, when you give, if you give him a biscuit the other day, chalky biscuit thing, not supposed to have them really, it's a grandparent treat. Steve, where's Steve, Steve Brown? Just become a grandparent, Steve and Juliet. Congratulations, Steve and Juliet. But you're, you're allowed to spoil your grandchildren, okay? Just don't let the parents know, yeah. But when I, give him a, when I give him a chocolate biscuit, he takes a biscuit and says, these biscuits give me power! <laughs> <laughs> and then goes madly running around the room. Uh, I suppose actually giving my grandkids chocolate biscuits and leaving them with their parents is a bit like giving you guys horns and boobizelas, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway, so, so it get, fire represents power. Power to, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 4, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And this is amazing, this, because sometimes I, I, mean, we, I speak in tongues, but it's a spiritual language. But this, is a, this amazing time here, they're speaking in all the languages of all the people gathered in Jerusalem. And they're declaring the goodness of God. And all the people are amazed. Because they all hear these guys babbling away, but they can hear their own language. I actually know that. Do you know, you know if, you, if you're a lot of noise going on in a foreign country and someone's speaking English, you pick out. Do you know that? You sort of hear that. Whoa, I know those words. Amongst the babble of French or German, whatever else is going on. And people are amazed by that. And the preacher preaches. And 3,000 of them become Christians. He says, let all Israel be assured, this is verse two, chapter 2, verse 36, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified because they're all basically Jews or, or, or people who are believing there, both Lord and Christ. Jesus has been very crucified, but he's, God has made him Lord and Christ. And then he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and your children and to all who are far off. Amazing. Peter standing up in authority, preaching the gospel, people converted, church grows from 100 odd to 3,000 odd in one hit. Whew! Bring it on, Lord, yeah? Unfortunately, there's not a crowd outside who can hear this, so probably ain't going to happen here. 
but just come back with me for a bit. Just come back to, to the disciples, because they've, they've gone through this amazing journey from, from when they were before the resurrection, after the crucifixion, they're in the upper room and they're locked in the upper room for fear of the Jews, it says. That's in John's Gospel. They were scared. And at that point, they really are scared. They've arrested Jesus. Jesus has been crucified. They don't know what's going on, really. And it, John says, God's gospel says, they're locked. They, for fear of the Jews, they lock themselves in. Then they meet Jesus. And then he talks to them over 40 days and, and tells them stuff. And then there's that moment, that last time, when he tells them that he's going, he leaves them, but he gives them three instructions. He tells them three things. You may take five, 10 seconds only, not to blow your trumpets, but just to think, what are the three things Jesus tells the apostles before he leaves them? What are the three last things? Now, the three things he says a little bit like, so first he says, don't leave Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem. Now, that's hard. That, I think, is a difficult thing for them because Jerusalem is a dangerous place. There's still the, you know, Jesus is going to go, he's gone. In a sense, they don't, haven't been empowered by the Holy Spirit yet. And they've got to go back into Jerusalem and wait there. And that's a dangerous place. Sometimes the words, what we're called to do by Father, what the revelation we're given, the words he tells us to do, aren't always easy things. Of course, if we go where he tells us, it's a safe place. Does that make sense? There's nowhere safer than being where God wants you. Say it after me. There's nowhere safer than being where God wants you. But worldly-wise, it's a dangerous place to go. Then he says, and wait. Wait. Because you're going to be my... He says, wait for the promise. That, when I was a kid, uh, when I was eight, this age, Dan and Joe's age, uh, the most annoying verse in the whole Bible was the honor your mother and father verse. When I became a parent, I found it the most useful verse in the whole Bible, has to be said. Your, 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 perspective, your perspective changes. But th this bit here really does still annoy me, sort of thing. I'm sure when Jesus says, because the, the disciples say, they say, you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel now, Acts 1, verse 6. And Jesus says, that it's not for you, he says, to know the times and the seasons those of you who've been following what we've been teaching here will know those two words are. It's not for you to know the Kronos or the Kairos. It's, I think, the only place I know where they use both words in the same sentence like that. Apart from possibly 1 Thessalonians 5, I think, as well. But, right? It's not for you to know the detailed time, 4 o'clock on Wednesday, or the season, the, the, time, the right time, the opportune time. And Jesus, Jesus says that about the second coming, because when he will, really will restore. But I think actually it also goes for a lot of the revelation we get. He tells the disciples, go back and wait. And he says, not many days in, in the Greek. But the many can be a huge number. They don't know how long they wait. This always annoys me. I want a schedule. I want to know when it's going to happen. When we get revelation... Revelation we've had, like, for example, the prodigals are going to come in, haven't we? When, Lord? I want to know. I, I, I mean, I'm impatient. I talk fast. I eat my food fast. I spill stuff. No. 
Can we have a diary appointment, Jesus? When are you going to come again? It'd be nice. The disciples are told to go back to Jerusalem and to wait. And Jesus then says, you'll be my witnesses. And in a way, that's important. That statement of what they're going to do, witness, comes after the promise. Wait for the promise you're going to have. Now, the disciples don't get a pretty good deal in some ways. They don't come up very well in the New Testament. They're always saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing. At that time when they go to a village and, you know, um, the village doesn't receive them and, and James and John says, should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? You just don't get it, guys. That's not what the kingdom's about. Or when Peter says, you know, you'll never die, Lord. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Even here in Acts 1, they've had 40 days with the risen Jesus, and even so they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Thinking it's going to be the sort of kingdom they thought it was. But I tell you what, at this point, look, those 10 days between Ascension and Pentecost, they do the right thing. They're obedient. Their fear that they had back between crucifixion and resurrection has somehow come to a point now where they're obedient to that command to go back to Jerusalem. They go to Jerusalem and they wait. And I don't think they had any idea what was going to happen at Pentecost. I don't think they had any clear concept of what would happen. But praise Jesus, they went back and they, they were obedient to what they'd been told. They hadn't been told much. Go to Jerusalem, wait, not many days for the promise, and then you'll be my witnesses. And in, the only thing they do in that gap, the only thing they do between the ascension and, and, and Holy Spirit coming on Pentecost, filling them, the only thing they do is try and elect another person to fill the place of Judas. Because they get this idea, we need to have a group of witnesses. We apostles, us 11, are the witnesses of the resurrection. Will get somebody else to fill the number. That, that seems to me, probably they didn't, I don't know, the guy they elect, a guy called Matthias, to replace Judas, he doesn't do much. He disappears from the story. I wonder whether actually, you know, but the disciples, it seems to me the apostles are trying to do what they can to prepare for being witnesses. And what they do, I don't think it's wrong. It doesn't, it's not dramatically right, I don't know whether, I mean, later on, James, the brother of Jesus, is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and Paul, you might say, is like the other, another apostle. But they go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the dangerous place. They're obedient. They wait. And they do what they can to prepare. And then, boom, on the day of Pentecost, they're filled with the Spirit. And God does what God always does. God gives glory to Jesus and people get converted and come into the kingdom. But it's not something that the apostles do. It's a brilliant example of what we're called. Hey, church, are, you, are we at that place where some of us are still a bit fearful of where we're going into? Of where, you know, what it's going to look like? And I, I, think, I think I want to say to you that, that we will not, not be fearful. We should not be fearful. And it's obedience to what we know that gets us to the place of expecting what God's going to do. We've had loads of prophecies and words and revelation about what God's going to do. And I want to encourage you this morning to be expectant of what he's going to do. But that means being obedient to what we know. 
what we've been told to do, and sometimes that means being, I don't know, just waiting and not being annoyed like I get sometimes. Obedience takes us from a place of fearfulness to a place of expectancy. Obedience to what God's told us to do, when he comes and does it, he'll come and do it. He'll work through us because we're going to be his witnesses as these guys were. But it's not our power. You can do nothing to build the kingdom by yourself. But everything you need to do to build the kingdom is ours already in Christ. And we have to just be that place where we're obedient to what we know. There's so much more I could say, but I'm aware of time. Stand up, please. I'm just going to make us. I'm going to Johnny Band. Uh, just check your how your hands, Johnny. They their fingers okay? Cold. <laughs> so I want to. I'm, just, I'm going to ask you to make three statements for us as a church and for us individually. One that we're not going to be scared of the future. Two, that we're going to be obedient to what, to what we know, what God's called us to do. And three, we're going, to be ex- we're, re- we're going to be expectant of what God is going to do. Okay? Martin, where are you? He's got the right microphone. Yeah. Is okay? I'll say the words again. And don't say them if you don't mean them, but let's mean them. So, Father, we will not fear the future. Say after me. Father, we will not fear the future. And secondly, Father, we'll obey what you've told us to do. Father, we will obey what you've told us to do. And thirdly, Father, we are expectant for what you're going to do in this place. Father, we are expectant for what you're going to do in this place. And Father, I just want to praise you that your Holy Spirit is here now. Father, I pray that you'd fill us and you'd fill this place. That you'd fill us with a knowledge and love of you and obedience to your word. And God, that we would be your witnesses. In Jesus' name, amen.